0: Good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together today. If you're a guest, welcome. I'm Mark, one of the pastors here. We're Really glad that you're here. Uh, From time to time, usually about once a month, I will write a note for Mark. And this past week, I did, and I was writing about Charlottesville, and I called it Charlottesville, Jonah, and Us. And I realized that in the business of summer, some of us got that email but never clicked on it and opened it. And some of us Go, what email? I don't get those because we don't have your contact information or some of you just may be passing through. But I thought it was really important for me to just go back. What I'm going to do as we start, I'm just going to read what I wrote this last week as we think about how we should be thinking and responding as Christ followers to things that are happening in our day that are not new but are very, very important. The photographs of Charlottesville this past weekend made my stomach turn. What made my stomach turn cut much deeper to my black friend, who said, nothing has cut me deeper than this. I'm hurt, feel disrespected, like we don't matter. I quickly was reminded there's a huge difference between being upset, even angry, and having your heart and hopes crushed yet again. To those in our church family who are black, Latino, Asian, Jew, a refuge, or an immigrant, We love you and are so glad that you're part of Door Creek Church. We feel so bad for what is and has been happening in our country and around the world and for the injustices you face with the fears and discouragement that would break you down. You enrich our lives. You do matter. Created in the image of God, you are crowned with glory and honor. We want your experience at Door Creek to give you hope as we gather each week around Christ and His Word, living for His glory and the good of the world. He's called us to serve in the power of His Spirit. We will not be silent. We will not say anything less than racism is sin, wherever it exists, in thought, word, or deed. We must not get sidetracked into thinking this is a political issue. This is a gospel issue, and the gospel heals all that the enemy would divide. This hatred grieves the heart of God and fractures society as it pits people against people. The Bible doesn't stutter on this issue. Our current study of Jonah's case in point God doesn't mince words with Jonah over the hatred he has in his heart for the people of Nineveh. Let us never forget that the hatred that is big enough to divide a nation is small enough to fit in our hearts in my heart. So let us be a people who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Or put another way, regularly confess all that is in our hearts that is not of Christ. Let us also be a people who lovingly serve, honor, and respect our neighbors, especially those who are vulnerable. Let us be a people who love our enemies, even as God so loved us, not seeking revenge. And let us be a people who live in hope and grace, not driven by fear. Together for Jesus, the only hope for the brokenness of our lives and this world. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you. Lord God, we remember that call for mercy, and we would say it again, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our nation. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our community. Lord Jesus, have mercy on our church. Marriages, the families of this church, Lord, have mercy on our broken hearts that are broken because we, Lord, we have a hard time loving and an easier time hating. We have an easier time operating out of fear than we do out of power, love, and self control. And so, Lord, we celebrate the fact that even as we're going through the storyline, it is a story of you bringing things that have been fractured by your own rebellion, selfishness, and sin, and you bring them back together through the cross. And we would pray that you would make us whole, make us a church that is whole and wholly embraces your heart, your mercy, your compassion. Lord, May we be positioned as your people to serve well as we join you in this world, doing what you ask us to do, to pursue justice and to love mercy and to walk in humility. And so until you come or call us home, may we be a merciful people, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're in Jonah. And Jonah couldn't be a better study for us at this time in our nation's history, which we realize isn't new history. It's the same history, and it's a sad history. And it's not just a history of our nation and of communities and cities. It's, it's a history of the frailty of the human condition and of our hearts. And so in God's good providence, We're studying Jonah. Let me tell you why we picked Jonah. When we laid out the study of the storyline, we knew we weren't going to get to every portion of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but we had a particular eye on, let's make sure we're focusing on those passages that remind us of God's love for all people because we desire to be a Christ-centered church for all people, right? And this is one of those all people passages, and that's why... A long time ago, we said we want to go through Jonah, even though it's only been three weeks. And so here we are. Grab your Bibles. Jonah, hey, if you're new to the Bible, just go to the table of contents, because I'm going to say things like Obadiah and Micah and things like that. You're going to go, I have no idea. It's towards the back of your Old Testament, the book of Jonah. We're in chapter 4. So as you're flipping through, turning on your phone, your tablet, whatever, let me kind of remind us, what this story is about. The story is about a wicked group of people that live in a city. It's the capital city. It's called Nineveh. It's the capital city of this great nation that's the superpower of the day. It's called the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians are outside of Israel. They're known by their violence and oppression, and they're basically, they're preying on any smaller nation around them. And it's very unique that God is sending his prophet, not to his people, but actually to the Ninevites with a word of warning that actually is a merciful gesture by God as he's wanting to wake them up to what they're doing and the consequences of what they're doing. And he's sending Jonah to do that, to be this agent who would speak for God and be someone who would bring about these people turning their hearts to God. Jonah wants nothing of it. God says, Nineveh's this way. Jonah says, that's right. You want me to go to Tarshish? It's this way, Tarshish. That's what I heard you say, right, God? And, And so he's going this way. God's moving in mercy to these wicked, evil people who are full of violence and oppression and injustice. And Jonah's running away from God's mercy. So God sends a storm. He stops Jonah in his tracks. He gets him Going back towards God and towards the mission here, he uses the storm to bring a a saving message to these sailors who don't know God, and there's good things going of God's mercy coming to people outside of Israel, and God is merciful to Jonah so that when he tells the sailors, throw me in the drink, because when you do that, we'll all be saved. You'll be saved, he says. You'll be saved. And God was merciful that he didn't send Jaws, right? He didn't send the great white. He sent some great fish who took Jonah in for the weekend, right? And then he spit them out on dry land, and and that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is Jonah praising God for his experience of mercy, that he saved him from drowning in the sea, and it's this beautiful Poetry, picking up all these beautiful expressions from the Psalms, as he's worshiping, thanking, praising the God of his salvation. At the end of chapter two, right? God hits the eject button, and Jonah's on the beach. And Jonah made a promise in in the big fish, right? He said, "God, you get me out of here." We've ever done that. You get me out of here, God, and I promise I'll, I'll go back to Nineveh and do what you asked me to do. That's what chapter three is. And he goes back, and he's got a second chance, more mercy from God. And the people hear the word of God through the prophet of God, and they believe it. And they turn from their evil, violent ways. And they're sorrowful for that, and they say, we're not going to do that anymore. And they fall before God, asking him for mercy, and they find it. That's where chapter 3 ends. God notices Their hearts, how they've turned to him in repentance, and he relents in sending the disaster and the calamity and the judgment. And so that's where we pick up chapter 4. And if chapter 2 is Jonah's response to God's mercy that he personally experienced, chapter 4 is Jonah's response to God's mercy that the Ninevites just experienced, and we're going to see it's a tale of two cities. He is not singing high praise to God. He is mad. So here we go, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Literally, in the original language the Hebrew, the word is evil. What seemed evil? That God didn't mail the, the Ninevites, that he didn't bring judgment. And he became angry, exceedingly angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord? I told you so. When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, can you just imagine Billy Graham coming to Madison, and we pack out Camp Randall for a week, and everybody in Dane County follows God, turns to God, trusts in Christ. They're on with God. And then we read this op-ed from Billy Graham, and he's ticked off of what's happened in Madison. We go, what? What do you mean? This is, but this is what's just happened. This is the greatest record of any revival of any group of people outside of Israel inside of Israel coming to faith in God 120,000 and he is ticked off. So we're just catching up with the craziness of what's going on here. But the Lord replied verse 4, "Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have the right to be angry?" He doesn't answer. Verse 5. Jonah gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. So he's outside the city, right? There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about what? About the plants. Let me just say it again. And Jonah was very happy about the plants. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? They don't know the, the difference between good and evil, and also many animals? Wow. What a book. What a surprise to see God's prophet seething in anger after God has just rescued out of his mercy and kindness 120,000 people from judgment. What a surprise. And why is he angry? Well, for the same reason we get angry, there's a backstory. This isn't happening in a vacuum. It's like he—it's not like he doesn't know anything about these people or these people don't have anything to do with him and his people. These are the Syrians. These are the people who prey on the weak and the vulnerable, people like Israel. This is the nation that came up against King Ahab and said, look, you know what? If you don't pay us taxes, we're going to wipe you out. We're going to destroy you. We're going to kill your women and children, and we're going to drag you back to our our nation here, and so you better pay up. They were cruel. They were vicious. That's what they were known for. The king talks about their own violence to each other. If that's how they're treating each other, you can only imagine what they're doing to people outside of Assyria. There is a backstory. He intersects with that backstory, and he's had a taste of it. And maybe he's caught up with the prophecies of the likes of Hosea, who talk about the future of this very people being used by God to carry off God's people into exile, which does happen. Which does happen. And so he, he's doing kind of what we do. So you, you ever suffered an injustice you ever been slandered by a group? You ever been mistreated? You ever been trashed? You ever been in the throes of some kind of a, a system that's supposed to be fair and bring about justice? And it was all bent, it was all goofed up. And you, you were on the outs of it. You got the short straw. And, and what do you feel about those people? Well, maybe it's just me, but I remember. I remember oh so well how I felt. God, get them. I was kind of hoping something bad would happen quick to those people just because they deserved it. Right? I mean, it, it, it is everything in us to move with mercy. It's, it's only God in us. Because when we're, we're on that side of it, it's like, oh yeah? Well, okay, so maybe you're not catching me. So you're married? You got a family, like you're a kid or you're a parent, or right, and your sibling, your wife, your daughter, your dad. They they said something really hurtful and mean. Maybe it's just me, but I was like, all right, let's go. I can I can do that. I mean, I don't even have to think about it. Just hurt back. So what? What's his? What? Where's his anger? It's in it's in real history. Of God's people being oppressed, taken advantage of, suffering from these cruel, oppressive, powerful people. And he wants justice. Is it wrong to want justice? No, it's not wrong to want justice. It's wrong to want revenge. And it's good to remember that God is king and he's a just God and everything and everyone will be brought before the king. Justice will be served. He wants it served now. And he's tripped up over what do you mean? They're, they're, what do you mean you're holding back? What do you mean you're going to forgive them? You can't just forgive them. He is so mad. He says he's mad enough to die. And let me just suggest one of the things he's tripped up over is this. If, if the Ninevites received mercy, and he knows. The Israelites have received mercy. Then they're kind of on the same playing field, and we're no better than them because we both need mercy. And in his mind, he is better, and Israel is better because we're the chosen people, for crying out loud. We're the people that God's pursued for a relationship. We're the covenant people, and we're the people who want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we deserve it. They don't deserve it. And it's maybe a reminder that, oh, uh, you needed mercy just like Nineveh needed mercy. And that wasn't sitting well with him either. So who's he mad at? He's actually not mad at Nineveh. He's mad at who? God. And what's he mad about? His mercy. That he would do what he says he's going to do. Way back in Exodus thirty-three, nineteen, 19, when Moses says, just show me a little bit of your glory. And and he says, well, I can't, it's too much for you. I'm going to hide you in this cave, and I'm going to go by you, and you're just going to get like the afterburners of my glory, the shadows of my glory, and you're going to see my goodness, which is my glory on display. And the first quality of his goodness that he points to is his mercy and compassion. And he says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. So he's mad at God. And he calls it evil, what God has done. In other words, this is like really bad. This is blasphemy. He's basically saying, God, you're, you've done evil by forgiving them and extending mercy, and so you're an evildoer. He's calling good evil, an evil good. Oh, we would never do that, right? We would never have this idea of we're better than other people. We would never have this idea of, well, they they deserve it. They they got what was coming to them. Remember 1989? There was a big earthquake in the Bay. Remember 2005? There was, I think that was the year, big, big hurricane that wiped out New Orleans. That sin city with the Mardi Gras festivals. I'm not belittling that. But that was the thinking. Remember the AIDS epidemic? And what was the church? What were that? I'm not saying all the churches, I'm not saying all the leaders, but it wasn't uncommon to hear in that day well, this is God's punishment. They're getting what they deserved. As if we'd somehow taken a step on a higher playing field, moral platform, and say, well, we're not, we're, you know, we don't live in the Bay Area. My city hasn't been rocked by God. Probably because we're better than them. Now, no one's saying that, but it was clear. They're deserving that. We're taking a moral higher ground, and we're just following in his steps, Jonah's steps, of thinking that somehow we deserve mercy. We're better, and they're really, really bad, and they don't deserve God's mercy. So God says, do you have the right to be angry? And he doesn't answer, but I think we know you know, he he did something like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I I sure do. I sure do. And then he he's just he does this kind of I told you so moment, right? He says, God, I told you so. Don't you hate it when people say that? I told you so. Have you seen that cartoon Savage Chickens? That's really funny. There's this one where the two chickens are inside the snake, and and the one chicken says the other, well. And um, it it was kind of like shorthand for, well, I I told you so. And and the other chicken replies, okay, you were right. Snakes aren't friendly. (laughs) So this is why we don't like I told you so, because at that point, they're going to remind us that we were wrong, and they were right. And so... He's, he's, got, he's got the audacity, this is, this is great to know, that God is big enough for us to be complete fools in front of him and play the I told you so with the God of the universe who knows everything and does everything perfect. He says, I told you so. This is why I went to Tarshish, because I knew that you're gracious and you're compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in loving kindness, and you relent in bringing calamity and disaster and judgment. And he was right as he understood who God is. What he fundamentally didn't understand is who are the recipients of that. He didn't think a Ninevite should deserve that. He didn't think that. So what does God do? Man, I'm thinking, well, I, I think I know what I would do. So where is he? He's camped outside the city, right? He's up on the hill, outside the city. He's making the shelter. I'm thinking like he saw some, some pallets. And it's like we used to do with kids, as kids, right? We'd make this little fort, and he's got these pallets, and he's got a little bit of protection, three sides, nothing over his head. And then, you know, he, he's sitting outside. And it's like he's camped out for... You know uh, what we used to call rhythm booms. What, what's it now? The big something by the lake. Whatever, shake the lake. Whatever. So it's like we've got our spot. We're waiting for the fireworks. That's where he is. You know, maybe we're up on this perch, this hill, because it's going to give us a good vantage of it. That's where he is. He's waiting for fireworks to come down from heaven and wipe them all out. He could be like, here's a good, here's a good idea, Jonah. You're a prophet of God. The prophets of God actually teach God's people. They teach people about God and what it means to follow. And these people just decided, out of the mercy of God, to, to be followers of God. Maybe you should teach them. Maybe you should pray for them. Maybe you should be happy with them. Uh uh-uh. He's out. He's on the edge. And he's waiting. He is waiting for fire and brimstone. He's waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah too. That's what he's waiting for. Just fry the whole lot. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, God's already given him a second chance, right? So now, now, what do you do to this guy? And what does God do? He's merciful. You know, I'm, I'm writing the story. I'm going, and at this point, God said to Gabriel, Gabriel, hit him with lightning. I mean, don't kill him, but just shake him up a little bit here. And He didn't do that. So what does he do? God grows a vine over his head to give him shade. And he's he's merciful to this prophet. He's using the vine to show him his own heart. He's merciful. He's using all of it to bring his heart back in line with God, even as he's just done through this disobedient, reluctant prophet to the people of Nineveh. And he uses it all to drive home the point that you've got compassion. And and so that's a good thing. But let's just think about your compassion, Jonah. It's for what? It's for your own comfort. It's for this vine, this plant that I just miracle-growed over your head in in a day. And you got more compassion for this vine that you didn't plant, and you didn't water it, you didn't feed it, you didn't do anything. And it was here today and gone tomorrow... And you have more compassion for that one vine that has everything to do with your own comfort than you do for 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. And so the book ends with God saying, should I not be concerned? Should I not have compassion is the word there about the city? And we ask ourselves, what's going on here? What's going on here? Why is, why is Jonah in the Bible? Jonah's in the Bible to remind us that God has a heart for all people inside of Israel, outside of Israel. When he said, Abraham, bless you, so that all the families of the world, this, this is part of that story. It's part of our story. We're outsiders, most of us. We're not of Jewish ancestry, Jewish blood. It's, it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder, too, of how easily it is for us to get it wrong. See, Jonah's in the right place doing the right things. Huh, just like us. We're in the right place doing the right things. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went to Nineveh. He's in the right place. He told him to tell Nineveh 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he told him, he, he, he spoke God's word. In the right place, doing the right things, but his heart wasn't in it. It wasn't in it. He was confused into thinking, my compliance and being in the right place and doing the right things is enough. That's all God asks. No, he doesn't. He says, love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when our attitudes of our heart aren't in line with God's heart, it isn't right. It isn't right. And so what is God doing throughout the period of the prophets? Remember last week we did a little overview. So if you didn't, if you didn't catch it and you're going, how, how do the prophets work? Just first 10 minutes of last week's message will give you a good overview of the prophets. The prophets are constantly calling people back to the relationship. You've done that with people. Maybe you've done it with a friend or a family member. They're going through a divorce or the aunt and your niece, you you know, whatever. There's this big rift and you're trying to call them back to work it out, to come together. That's what the prophets are doing. You've walked away from God. You've lost your way. You're worshiping these idols and you're trashing the vulnerable. And they're saying, come on back to God. Come back, come back, come back. That's what this story is about. The interesting thing here is the only people that come back in, in the book of Jonah are the Ninevites and the sailors, the people outside. The prophet isn't coming back. You go back to chapter 2, and you read through all of chapter 2, and you'll see nothing of what we just read yesterday if we're reading through the Old Testament. Psalm 51 starts with, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgression, my sin. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's nothing in Jonah. There is nothing there of repentance and sorrow over his own rebellious, broken heart. And so how does... How does Jonah get from praise and thanksgiving and worship over his own experience and then angry, angry over God's compassion? And the answer is, it's really easy. It's really easy. When Christ's spirit isn't operating in me and you, we will gravitate towards Pride. We will gravitate towards we deserve things. We'll gravitate towards revenge. We'll gravitate towards anger. We, we just will. That's the natural, in a, in a sense, gravity of our soul apart from the grace and mercy of God. And that's where he's at. That's where the people of God are at. And that's, that's the lesson that God wants to give us is man, we could be people in the right place doing the right things and our hearts are not right with God. And it could be because we're selfish and he was selfish. He was way more concerned about what? The shade, the vine, than he was 120,000 people. And so how do, you, how do you get from chapter two and loving God's mercy for me to hating it for other people? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons that could get us there. So there's selfishness. There could be pride in thinking that we're superior. So, I mean, Jonas, he's, he's not just wrestling, he's giving in to racism. That's, that's what, that was the temptation, that he would just carte blanche, just broad brush and say, all of them, every one of them, bad, wicked, evil, terrible, I'm way better. We're way better. We deserve it. They don't deserve it. Th- that's at the heart of what's going on there. And we can have that. Oh, look at if the prophet had it. If the prophet of God, who wasn't all bad, right? I mean, he sacrificed his life to save the sailors at the beginning of the story. It's not like he's a bad, 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 bad guy. He's just a messed up guy with a messed up heart. Like me and like you proud. I mean, this this gets really personal, the Jonah thing. I mean, it could get to racist attitudes of our heart, and that's certainly a great application. It also could just be about how we're just dealing with somebody who's wronged us. And Do do we want to be part of them experiencing God's mercy? Or do we just want God to nail them with his justice? Fear is a big thing. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he knew about what was going to one day happen through these people who would just do just awful things to the Israelites. Maybe it was fear. You know, the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear, P.D. James writes in one of her novels, perfect love may cast out fear, but fear is remarkably potent in casting out love. There's a lot of fear that's part of the backstory. There's a lot of pride that's part of the backstory of what's going on in our nation, but not just our nation. It's going on in Africa. It's going on in Europe. It's going on wherever there are people and different people trying to live together. Here's what we know, though, as Christ's followers who have his spirit within us. 2 Timothy seven, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and t- timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So, do I have selfishness? Oh, yeah, I do. Where I'm more concerned about my comforts than lost, hurting people. Am I proud? Oh, I think I'm better. Am I hypocritical in mixing compliant behavior for complete obedience? Am I gripped with fear and ruled by hatred? Or is there just an indifference like, hey, you know what? It's so bad over there, I want to be as far away because, you know, God's going gonna to deal with those people out there. And so I'm just going to withdraw to the east side of Madison to whatever it is where I'm just going to get my little holy huddle and let's just gang up and can we sing kumbaya again? Ben, get up here and let. we want to sing some more and we want to, you know, because we just feel so good together. It's so bad out there. And we're just indifferent. In his book, Simple Christianity, Chris Hertz tells this gripping story of one of his travels to India. His organization helps the world's poor. He's going through the streets of Calcutta one night when they see this young man, 20, 22 years of age, under uh, this fly-infested bank, blanket with a, a trail of diarrhea coming from it. Everybody's passing by, but he and his friends can go and, and see if he's even alive. His friend Josh pulls down the blanket. The guy looks at him and he understands that these people aren't here to take advantage of him, but to care for him. One of his friends gets out a bottle and some, and some newspaper and starts cleaning him up. And this guy as he's, in, as he's experiencing their merciful compassion just loses it. He's just weeping that people would care for him in his condition. People are, are, are they're trying to hail a cab. No cab's stopping for him. Finding some other friends, hail a cab. They've come by, and they get him off to Mother Teresa's home for the dying. And as he's just kind of processing what has happened, he's just kind of, just, it was just so, oh, it was just so hard. And, and this guy's response to mercy So gripping. And then he lifts his eyes, and he sees like five feet behind where this guy Tullus was was lying there in the gutter, so to speak. He sees this church sign on this gate, and it said, All are welcome. And he said, Well, I knew that it wasn't really true because the whole time that we were there, there were people behind the gate that never came and helped. And maybe it's fear, or maybe it's pride, or maybe it's because we like our creature comforts. Comforts, it's just, It could be really easy. be really easy just to stay behind the gate, just kind of huddle together. One of the things that drew me to this church 12 years ago was this church's commitment to make a difference in our city, not just around the world, but in our city. That's what next weekend's all about. Serve, and honestly, we don't have a very good response. I know it's busy; it's always busy. But when we partner with our schools, these are schools that are serving the most vulnerable right here in Madison and Sun Prairie, up north into Forest. It's a great opportunity, but man, it's easy to just be indifferent. May God show us our heart, even as we see his, that this is who he is, verse 2, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. We're part of Nineveh. We're part of Jonah. And we need to remember that the reason that we can experience that the Ninevites could experience God's mercy Because he knew one day his son would pay for all of their violent acts, all of their oppression, all of their hatred, all of it. We have an advantage that Jonah never had. We know that Jesus gave up the comforts and took on our sin and experienced God's just wrath so that we could receive his mercy. And so every day this week, let's remember, his mercies are new every day. Why is that? Just because that's who God is. And it's because what we need, we need it every day. And, And may we drink of the mercy of God, that he would call us daughters and sons, that he would call us to be part of his work of bringing things together, of bringing hope to this world, and the only hope of this world, that is in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who one day will make all things right. Until that day, may we be a people of mercy. Until that day, will you be a man of mercy in your marriage with your kids at work, a woman of mercy to the people that are suffering? Would we be a church that revels in mercy and traffics in mercy? Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for this hard word that's a good word. It's a good word because it reminds us of your goodness, your grace and compassion, your loving kindness and that your patience. And you're not looking to whack us with judgment, but to heal us with mercy. But a hard word to see so much of Jonah's heart is our heart. But a good word... To remember that when we turn to you like the Ninevites, like Jonah needed to do, like Israel needed to do, like we needed to, Lord. When it's so easy to say, look at all the mess out there, is to say, Lord, we're a mess. And we've confused the categories and thinking that we're in the right place doing the right things. And that makes us right when our hearts could be so wrong. Heal our hearts, forgive our Hearts, our selfish, comfort seeking hearts. And help us to believe what is true that one day you will make all things right. And until that day, may we be part of bringing your kingdom here on earth as we do life together as your people. In Christ's name, for your glory and the good you've called. In the good of the world, you've called us to serve.